Welcome to the Paul Post podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. We've reached an interesting point in American international relations, and you've come up with a matrix of of sorts about America's diplomatic approach and its responsibilities. Can you walk us through that? This comes out of the fact that over the past several months, I've been asked on a number of occasions to speak about both what to expect from Biden's foreign policy, but also to reflect on Trump's foreign policy. And in the process of having these conversations, whether they're events or with the media or what have you, I've gradually kind of refined more and more my thoughts about both individuals and where both individuals differ, where they might be similar. And in the process, I also started comparing them to Obama and saying, okay, well, how do they compare to Obama? And then also in that process, I've also thought about where, well, where does a Trump, where does an Obama, where does a Biden fit in the context of U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, right? And so through thinking all of this, I started to say, you know, what would be a way to think about U.S. foreign policy and where a president fits? What, how would you define their foreign policy? And I especially became interested in wanting to do this because in a lot of these conversations, when you think about foreign policy, it almost becomes like a laundry list of like, well, let's talk about Russia. Let's talk about um, climate. Let's talk about Middle East. Let's talk about this. And, and then, you know, as a result, and that's, that's fine because these are all different issues, but as a result, it becomes very hard to like wrap your head around it because you're just going kind of from issue to issue to issue to issue. And so what I thought was, is there a way to like classify an overall, like overall classify a president's foreign policy? And indeed we, we do this anyways, right? Because you'll often hear, um, typically in policy realm, but a lot of times in journalism, you'll hear people like come up with a doctrine. They'll use the phrase, the doctrine, the Bush doctrine, the Trump doctrine, the Obama doctrine. Um, and, and that's a way to try to do exactly this, which is, okay, there's all these various issues. It's hard to get my head around all of them, but if I could somehow come up with a unifying theme, this would be the unifying theme. And if we think about like what the Bush doctrine was, it was about preventive war. Um, people talk about the Trump doctrine. They said, you know, we're America, bitch. You know, that was the phrase that was used in the Atlantic article and, and then on down the line, there's been all these different ways that people have tried to come up with the overall tenor of a foreign policy. And so that led me to then come up with this like two by two, which is in a very classic U Chicago way, right? Is this two by two, which is you have these two dimensions. And these two dimensions are, first of all, what's the overall diplomatic approach of a U.S. president? Right. And so this could be cooperative. 
meaning working with allies, working with other nations, seeking out solutions that may not even be, that might be more preferable to another country than what's the U.S. preference, but you're you're putting a deference towards cooperation. And then non-cooperative, right? Which is, well, no, we're going to do this the way that we think this should be done, and if other countries want to come along, that's fine, but they're going to be following. And again, I want to emphasize that's the overall tenor. Within all administrations, there's a little bit of cooperation. There's times of non-cooperation. But overall, do you tend to see them be more cooperative or non-cooperative? And then the other dimension to it is how do they view U.S. responsibilities? Do they view U.S. responsibilities as being of a global nature, meaning that if there's problems anywhere, the U.S. should be seeking to try to address those? Or do they take a much more selective approach? Which is to say that ideally, yes, we would love to be able to address everything, but we really have to be conscientious of like the cost-benefit calculus here. And so that's the other idea. That's the other dimension. And if you take those two things together, then you end up with kind of four overall type foreign policies, ways to classify the foreign policies of U.S. presidents. The first one is if you have a global view of responsibilities and you're highly cooperative, then I call that Team America, right? And it's like we're going to lead the way and and make the world a better place or you know work with our allies to address all the problems in the world. Sticking with the cooperative, if you instead take a much more selective, which is to be like, eh, you know, there's just things we're not going to really want to get involved with or we're going to be, if you will, reluctant to get involved with, then I call that reluctant America. You know, it's like you'll work with other countries, but you're going to be selective in where you work. And indeed, there will be times where you would prefer that other countries take the lead on these issues. Then if you move down to non-cooperative, you could be non-cooperative but still have a global view. You're like, we're going to be involved everywhere, but we're totally doing it on our terms, right? And I call that America F yeah, right? And this comes from, that's in reference to the, the song from Team America World Police, uh, the movie from you know over a decade ago that was a parody and a commentary on the Bush administration's foreign policy. And then finally, you have non-cooperative and highly selective and where you're going to be and that's America first, right? And that's really what's meant by an America first foreign policy. So you have Team America, Reluctant America, America F yeah, and then you have America first. And then what I did was I said, well, where do U.S. presidents all fall on this? And and I looked at this going back to Woodrow Wilson. You could go earlier than Wilson, but Wilson, in the view of many historians as well as IR scholars, kind of marked the beginning of like, U.S. global engagement, right? And so that's why I went back to Wilson. And I'm not going to go through all 19. We could we could spend multiple podcasts talking about why any particular president falls where they do. But just to give you a sense is a Team America president would be like Bill Clinton or even George H.W. Bush, right? And so a lot of the, the, the post-Cold War presidents of working with allies, expanding NATO— um, building coalitions, WTO, Asia, you know, end of history type presidents, global, U.S. global presence, that is Team America. And there's a potential that Biden might even fall in that. We could talk about why that is. Reluctant America is, in many ways, I actually, some people wonder about this, but I actually put like Obama in a reluctant America. And that Obama was 
he even was very explicit about you have to be aware of cost benefit. I want as president, I, I want to be very aware that you can't be everywhere all the time. Um, he even used the phrase leading from behind, like in reference to Libya. Um, of course, we had like the red line where he chose not to enforce the red line uh, statement that he had in Syria. So these are examples of, yes, he recognizes that it's important to work with allies, but he's being real selective on when he does it. Then you have, of course, America, F yeah, that's George W. Bush. Um, but that's also Wilson. And I think some people, when they start to think about that, they go, oh, I guess, yeah, Woodrow Wilson was not actually all that cooperative in his approach. He was very much like, here's America, we're going to come in. We're going to fix things according to our terms. I mean, just think about the fact that he used the phrase associated power, not allied power. And then finally, you have America first. And this is people like these are presidents like Trump. But I also put Nixon here, uh, Harding, Hoover, who, of course, you know, these were presidents right on the verge of beginning of the Great Depression with uh, U.S. protectionism. And so that's that's overall kind of what this was intended to do was to give you a sense of the overall approach of a U.S. president with respect to their foreign policy. Where was America sitting or, or where was the world sitting historically? You mentioned that um, a lot of these presidents in the America first were pre-collapse periods, if you like. What about the other? Where were they sitting historically? What's really neat uh, or nifty, if you will, about this two by two is that by and large, it's hard to really pin down and say, oh, well, all presidents from a particular era fall into a, a, a camp. So take, for example, Team America. So I, I start with Team America by mentioning Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, and indeed both of those were our two immediate post-Cold War presidents. And so in that sense, it would make – you would say, oh, well, this is about when the U.S. became the unipolar power, and so now they have this global influence, and indeed they're – you know, developing the WTO, NATO expansion, uh, signing all sorts of agreements. This is Coca-Colonization of the world. I mean, of course, you're going to put these presents there, but not all post-Cold War presidents fit there. You then go to George W. Bush, where he took a much more non-cooperative approach, but still global in nature, still viewing that the U.S.'s responsibilities are global and we're going to try to engage them as much as we can. But then you have Obama who moves over to more of a selective side. And I actually, this, this is consistent with something I've said before, which is that I very much view Obama as the beginning of kind of a pushback against the much more global engagement view that U.S. foreign policy had at the immediate onset of the Cold War, or the end of the Cold War, that you had, as soon as the Cold War was over, it was the unipolar moment. It's all oh, U.S. can do whatever it wants. It's going to be engaged everywhere. And you had that with Clinton. You had that with George H.W. Bush. You had that with George W. Bush. But as we've talked about before on this podcast, that led to the perception of two endless wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. Eventually, this led to – you could argue that this very much contributed to the financial crisis of 08. And so suddenly now there's this desire for the U.S. to be much more insular, to be much more at least selective in where it's engaged, not to be the world's policemen anymore, as the phrase would be used. And so Obama kind of represented that. Still very cooperative, but much more selective. And then Trump kind of takes it further, right? Trump then goes, well, we're not only going to be selective, but we're not even going to try to be as cooperative anymore. 
And so the question becomes is, does Biden represent kind of a flip back to Team America, right? That's kind of the question that we're going to see. If you look at his recent speeches, you would think that he is. He's like, he views U.S. responsibilities as everywhere. And he's emphasizing working with allies. But that remains to be seen. But the main point of just kind of walking through the WH, H.W. Bush, Clinton, W. Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden is you can see where even within a particular era, you can jump around from foreign policy to foreign policy. So it's really hard to say that like there's a, a certain type of foreign policy was pursued consistently in a particular era. We have spoken, obviously, uh, primarily about the Trump approach to international relations. And we said last week we would start focusing on looking forward and the Biden administration. If we were to write a Dear Mr. Biden letter from IR scholars, what would the advice be to him? I like this question. And we're at the opportune time to do it. As I just mentioned, Biden last week gave his first big foreign policy speech. Much of what was in that speech wasn't surprising if you pay attention to things that he had said during the campaign or if you looked at views by Blinken and others of his advisors. It, the th overall theme of that speech, and hence going back to what finally prompted me to make this two-by-two, two, was very much a Team America view. Global engagement, very cooperative. <clears throat> that seems to be what he wants to pursue. The key will be twofold. Number one, will he be able to pursue that? And number two, should he pursue that? So will he pursue that depends not so much on what he does or even what the U.S. does, but what other countries are going to allow the U.S. to do. And I'm not referring to Russia or China trying to balance and counter U.S. actions. I'm referring to are the Europeans going to sign up for this? Are they going to be once bitten, twice shy? Are they going to be like, wait a minute here? No, no, no. Yeah, that's great you're saying all this. And we heard similar stuff from Obama. But there was some stuff that we weren't thrilled about with Obama. There was some stuff we liked with Obama. It was fine. But then it went to Trump. And now we just don't know. Like, is there going to be another? I mean, is Trump even going to be back in four years? Or is there going to be someone who's even, you know, same view as Trump, but more extreme. Um, and they also don't forget about George W. Bush. They can say it's not just about Trump. They say, is there something more systemic, uh, systemic here that we could go from a Clinton to a W. Bush to an Obama to a Trump, now to a Biden? After a while, you start to sit there and go, I don't know what, what we're supposed to expect. And again, this is kind of why this two by two is useful, is this illustration that it's not like Every single president in a row fits into a particular box. You could be jumping around, and Europeans, as well as, say, allies in East Asia, South Asia, worldwide, know this, right? They know that the U.S. could be jumping around. Probably the countries that are most sensitive to this are the countries in Latin America. Are we going to have a U.S. president that's going to pay attention to us, or are we going to have a U.S. president that's going to ignore us, right, and take us for granted? And that can jump from administration to administration. So I think that's the first factor is, and we're already starting to see a little bit of that, right? We're already starting to see where certain European leaders are like, mm, 
I'm not so sure that we can just immediately rebuild this relationship. So that's the first factor. But the second factor is, is the should. Should the Biden administration be pursuing a Team America global engagement cooperative approach? That's, to me, the bigger question. Is, and the reason why is because I actually don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> and the reason why I don't know if it's a good idea is not because in some platonic ideal I would love us to be pursuing a global engagement cooperative. Yes, but go back to what I was just talking about a little bit ago, and we've talked about on this podcast before. A major reason why we ended up with an Obama who pursued a reluctant America foreign policy and then eventually ended up with a Trump pursuing a team America foreign policy was due to dissatisfaction within the America public over a team America foreign policy. That years of kind of going from Bush to Clinton back to Bush and then it's like, wait, are we going to go to Clinton again? Because remember, Obama beat Hillary Clinton in the primaries to become the Democratic nominee in 08. And then Trump again is facing off. Who did Trump beat? He beat Jeb Bush, and then he beat Hillary Clinton. And so both times you had the American public making clear definitive statements saying, no, we don't want to go back to a Bush-Clinton type policy, foreign policy. And so the question is, if Biden starts pursuing Team America again, is that going to actually exacerbate the problems exacerbate the perception of Team America foreign policy being not what people want. That's the reason why I think there, it is more appropriate to go towards a reluctant America foreign policy, being much more selective in where we're involved, recognizing that there was a reason that America first, I don't think we should go to America first, but there's a reason why America first resonated. And being more sensitive to that rather than just going to the extreme opposite of it. So that's that's kind of the that would be the overall plea that I would make to a Biden administration is to not just say, oh, well, we can't go back to America first. Therefore, we need to go to the extreme of Team America. I'm not sure that that's setting up the U.S. for success in foreign policy. There is a sense in Europe that. It is a case of make your mind up. We don't mind if you're reluctant or want to be America first. Just decide which it is that you want to be so that we can get on with our lives. To the point where you have pushed the patience of European leaders, in particular the French President Mr Macron, is now saying the woke left-wing politics has just gone too far and it's starting to ruin France. And I think that message would resonate in a number of European, not to mention Middle East countries. So we've written our letter to dear Mr. Biden. What should Mr. Biden write to dear Mr. Macron? Well, I think what he wants to write is he wants to write, don't build a European army, right? He's like, no, 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 no. There's no need to do that. America's here. America's great. That's what he wants to write. Um, I think what he should be writing, though, is actually, you know what, that, that European army idea, that's, that's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. And the U.S. can support you in doing that, and eventually we think that that would be a good thing. That would be an example of a reluctant, more selective foreign policy. Be like, okay, you know what, the U.S. can't support and be everywhere all the time. The Europeans need to take on more of a responsibility themselves. Now, that leads to a whole other 
can of worms, which is could could Europe even create such a thing? Because and then that gets into you know concerns of European countries regarding protecting their sovereignty and what have you. But you know that's that's just one example of I think where Biden really should the letter he should write to Macron is you know what a lot of the views you have I understand. I understand why you have those views. And in fact, I think that you should take steps to ensure that regardless of what we do, because we might go here and we might go there, even under the best of intentions, right? Again, that you know, great title of the book that Stephen Walt wrote, you know, The Hell of Good Intentions, right? It's like even with the best of intentions, we may be going all over the place, but you should do more to take care of yourself. And that's something that I think he and Macron can get along with, can agree on. Now, the, the problem is, is that I don't think Macron actually has <laughs> the support of others in Europe to pursue necessarily these policies. I also don't know if that's even his end game, right? I mean, a big part of this could be just within internal French politics, right, of trying to appeal to maybe the harder right there and so forth. So I think that this is, you know, this is, yeah, that, that's kind of the overall tenor of what Biden should say. But whether that will then resonate, whether that will actually lead to other policy changes, kind of goes back to what I just said. It's a little bit of what America could do, but it's also what others will allow to happen. And in this case here, it would be, okay, he should make this plea to Macron, but how well will that actually play out would remain to be seen. Macron and, and other things, Thought leaders, not just Macron, but other other you know leading intellectuals and politicians in France, are talking about wokeism and this American style of mm. progressivism is actually amplifying a style of politics and, and social activism that simply cannot work. What it tends to do is unwittingly open the door to right wing populism. I was reading about this the other day, and. I just found the whole conversation bizarre, extremely bizarre. And I'm like, really? Like this, this to me, it, it very much has the same tenor of, you know, these left wing college professors are indoctrinating, you know, not allowing freedom of speech and wokeism is breaking apart American fabric and all this. And then, you know, you hear that and then, uh, you know, you turn around and talk to other university professors and they're like, wow, we, we really have that much influence. I can't even get my students to read the syllabus. Right. You know, so it's like, I, I to me, this, this, well, to me, this just, this is in the same vein that it's like, when people complain about like the leftist university professors indoctrinating our kids, that's just, it's just some sort of cop out. It's just trying to find someone to complain about. And they point to a university professor because they say, Oh, that's a cushy life. You've got tenure, you know, so we're going to, you know, I mean, it's fair game. Okay, fine. You know, you, you, you take on people who you think are in a position of privilege and, and you complain about them. But the reality is, is, is that no, we don't have this kind of influence and this is not, perpetuating wokeness in America culture. It's like, no, these, these progressive views are coming about through other reasons, right? Not just university professors spouting them. And I think the same thing in France. I think that, you know, when I was reading this, I'm like, really? Like these ideas, these academic ideas are having this kind of immediate influence in French society and culture, and that's what you're pushing? Or could it just be, much like in the United States, that there are other factors that are driving people to say, we need to be pursuing a much more progressive domestic 
policy. And it has, yes, university professors might be saying things that are in line with that, but that doesn't mean that they're actually having the influence on it. So if you want to get really technical about it, it's conflating correlation with causation, right? It's like, yes, you'll hear here in the United States, university professors, you'll hear them advocating for certain progressive policies, progressive views. That doesn't mean they're causing it. They're just talking about it. There's other things that are driving interest in these policies, whether it is policies for racial justice, policies for the Green New Deal, whatever you want to call it, universities professors aren't the ones driving this debate about that or desire for that. And, and when I saw this playing out in France, I thought the same thing. I thought, this is crazy. We don't have that kind of influence. It's like they're just pointing because they don't know who else to point to to say why suddenly there's now an interest and a desire within French society for these type of policies and these views. Well, it could equally be that, um, simply put, Macron is just looking for more conservative votes. I do wonder if, if, if the problem here is that we keep on setting up these straw men in politics rather than tackling the real issues that we have to tackle. Oh, 100%, 100%. And that goes back to my comment about you know, university professors having a position of privilege, right? And so hence that makes us an easy target that, that for a politician who's looking to lay blame on something, maybe not wanting to recognize the broader societal forces that are driving something, you can simply say, oh, this is these left-wing university professors who are, you know, imposing wokeism on society. And it's just because we're an easy target that way. And I think that you're exactly right, that Macron is doing something very similar in France, that it's like it's easy for him to just say that versus actually taking seriously the pressures within society that are making people want to advocate for these views that, yes, they might be reinforced by university professors. And yes, they are things that university professors can help maybe people think about and, and maybe even want to engage, but they still go deeper than that. And so, yeah, I think, but I think you're right. That kind of the, the desire for a boogeyman, the desire for a scapegoat, that's exactly what I think we're seeing here. 